trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. My unofficial slogan, now nah, maybe it's my official slogan, is uh, Rebel in Wrong Think. And you know, yeah, there's a certain contrary tongue-in-cheek uh, meaning to it, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that if you're not willing to uh, not only engage in wrong think, but revel in it, you're not going to make it. We live in a time where, in, where reality is being inverted in just about every aspect of our lives. The gaslighting, the uh, propaganda, uh, do I dare say the word? The misinformation and disinformation out there that's intended to keep us from seeing things as they really are. It seems to be growing with every passing day. And I'm not here to portray myself as, I am the one true source of light and knowledge. I'm not. That's God. <laughs> if you, you want light and knowledge, that's where you need to turn your face. But... I am a person who is very serious about trying to sort out fact from fiction and, most importantly, trying to encourage other people to think as clearly and independently as possible. Now, that means you're very likely to disagree with me, and that's okay. Okay, in no, in no way is there an implied contract here that, well, you know, if you want to listen to this show, you've got to agree and nod thoughtfully and, you know, send me lots of money and send me lots of accolades because I'm just that good. Nope, I'm just a person who believes that there is a need for individuals to speak the truth. Frankly, I'm trying to encourage those who are finding their voice to step up and speak the truth. And to the best of my ability, that's what I try to do on a day-to-day basis. I don't care what critics are saying. I don't care what the authorities are saying. I'm trying to do what I believe God put me on earth to do. And that is speak the truth doesn't make me important by the way it makes me a servant so i'm here to serve you if you're a truth seeker that's why i'm here now having said that i gather that there are a lot of people who are well they're frustrated right people who are looking for positive change people who are looking for ways to 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 fix what's going on in the world what's wrong in the world um, it's very easy to get discouraged and i feel this too so I want to share with you a commentary from, from Paul Rosenberg. Man, I love this guy's take on things. There is, there's so much wisdom that Paul has to offer. And if you're looking for some good news, I think you may find this, this is the good news. We're going to start out with, with some good news today. His essay is called Looking for a Reason to Believe. The Benefit of the Doubt is Cracking. Now, Paul comes right out and just says, look, those of us who pursue positive change are very often frustrated. We see the necessity of change all too clearly. We can explain how it should come about, but it never seems to happen. This is why we get cynical, or at least people perceive, you're very cynical about this. Well, he says, the truth, however, is that change does come, but it comes more slowly than we'd like, and it comes in ways that differ from those we imagined. I don't know if that rings as true with you as it does with me, but I think he's right. Now, he says, one real change that, I, that he likes to point out is the passing of blind trust in politicians. So, think back. If you were around in the 50s and 60s, you know that most people spoke of politicians with respect and even with reverence. 
right? These are authority. These are leaders. We, we show respect for the office, if not for the person. But he says now it's almost standard for people to agree that uh, most politicians, they're liars and thieves. Now, that's a very significant change, even if it did take several decades to unfold. So a significant change has happened in our time and over a very broad base. Paul Rosenberg says still, most people are hanging on, often desperately, to old ways that really should be abandoned. Now he says, it's a bit troubling to see how blindly and for how long people give the benefit of the doubt to hierarchy and its operators. In other words, you can know that a system is abusing you, You can complain about it at length, but you'll still grasp at reasons to keep believing in it. I see this all the time. Especially when when the police power of the state is misused and someone is abused. What's the common reason? Well, they should have obeyed the law. (laughs) As if that excuses brutality on the part of the state. So here are some examples that Paul Rosenberg gives of historically why people will know that a system is abusing them. They might complain about it, but they're still looking for a reason to believe. It's, it's legit, though. It's legit. So he says, during the bad spots of the Middle Ages, people would be abused by the clergy, but they would say, if only his holiness knew. Or during the reign of the USSR, people in the gulag would say, if only Stalin knew. In our time, people hold political party A or political party B as grave evils while pretending that the combination of A plus B is good and noble. Still, he says, such blind biases do eventually break. Stalin, after all, is gone, along with his USSR. The Protestant Reformation broke the domination of the church, and the delusions of our time will die as well. Now, he says, if there were such a competition, competition, he says, I would nominate Rod Stewart's song, Reason to Believe, as the anthem of the age. Regardless of how badly they're abused, he says people have a very hard time letting go of their hierarchies because they've taken emotional refuge in them, after all. And even when sharp pain forces them to examine the hierarchy that constantly tells them, obey or we'll hurt you, the impulse to maintain belief erupts. This is how the song expresses it. If I listened long enough to you, I'd find a way to believe that it's all true. Knowing that you lied, straight-faced, while I cried, Still, I look to find a reason to believe. Oh, that is just so spot on. Now, Paul Rosenberg says humans have a real problem with that last line, looking for reasons to believe. It flies in the face of both logic and honesty, but people not only do it, but they vigorously defend it. And as for specific reasons to believe, well, they're endless. Seldom are humans quicker and cleverer than when justifying their previous actions. So, why is this a good sign? When people are desperately grasping for reasons to believe, well, he says it's because the benefit of the doubt is cracking beneath them. Otherwise, why would they fight so wildly? The circumstances of our modern world are propelling people toward this break. Every time a ruling system tells gigantic lies, censors the public square, surveils their own people, and frightens the masses for their own benefit, belief in their system cracks a little. More and more people are conceding that it's not just one bad actor here or there, but that Joe Stalin really is evil, that clergy really is corrupt, that hierarchies are abusive by nature. The whirlwind of distractions and slogans arrayed against moral clarity are losing their effectiveness. And so he says, little by little, humanity's blind devotion to authority is cracking. It's someday it will break. 
By the way, someone responding to this essay actually uh, used a line from the 1988 song uh, from Living Color, Cult of Personality. And they nominated, this may be the anthem of the age too. Do you remember these lines? I sell the things you need to be. I'm the smiling face of your TV. Oh, I'm the cult of personality. I exploit you. Still, you love me. I tell you one and one makes three. I'm going to have to sit down and listen to that song. It's been a while since I rocked out, but that's, that's a great tune. So, let me give you an example of what we're talking about here. I think I mentioned this yesterday. Um, the Mayo Clinic, actually on their website, had, had pointed out that, yes, hydroxychloroquine, and I, I think they may have said ivermectin too, but definitely hydroxychloroquine may be used to treat some COVID patients. They admitted it's an effective treatment for COVID in some patients. Would it surprise you to learn that they have since scrubbed that webpage and gone to a safe explanation wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it for myself. I remember the story breaking. By the way, Zero Hedge has been on top of this. So if you haven't checked it out, zerohedge.com can tell you a little bit more about it. But sure enough, here's the webpage on the 25th. Here's the webpage on the 26th. And my gosh, it has been altered. Now, thankfully, people got screenshots. Thankfully, the Wayback Machine still exists. And it's, it's preserved there. So I have to ask you to consider this, you know, admittedly uncomfortable question. Why would they change it? You know the answer. I know the answer too, but let's let's say it together out loud. It's because there is a narrative to be maintained. And maintaining that narrative is intended to keep us obedient to those in authority, in the dark, unable and unsure about, you know, what's real and what isn't. So we have to turn to them. Dr. Fauci, tell us, what should we believe? That benefit of the doubt is cracking. And frankly, I think that's a wonderful thing. I, the, I know it makes people uncomfortable. Sometimes they get angry. I've been called many names. I've, I've, I've had people express great frustration with me because of this. And I'm okay with that. I don't take it personally. I understand that, uh, you know, they are trying to uh, prevent mental contradictions within their little mental universe. They're bumping up against the boundaries of what they believe, and it's it's uncomfortable. But if you want to be a truth seeker, if you want to be a person able to sort fact from fiction, you got to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This. Is the Brian Hyde Show? Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you have not subscribed to my show notes, uh, look, I'm not recommending them as you know the be-all, end-all of the only truth you need. We all need truth, and we need it from multiple sources, but we need to be able to recognize it, which means we've got to sharpen our own thinking abilities. But I do provide some pretty good food for thought on a day-to-day basis. And I would encourage you, if you're so interested, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Brian is spelled with a Y. Hyde is spelled with a Y. And consider subscribing. I'll drop a copy of those show notes in your email inbox each day that I do the show. And hopefully you can find, you know, some food for thought in the different different uh, commentaries that I share, the articles, as well as links to the various guests that I have on the program. 
found a dandy on intellectualtakeout.org. And this is from Jeff Minnick. I thought it was timely because, uh, frankly, I don't know about you, but no one is likely to mistake me for a cultured, sophisticated man about town. But that doesn't mean that I can behave uncivilized. In fact, I I think, uh, frankly, we, we see a lot of uncivilized behavior. Oh, what was the video I saw the other day that just just blew my mind. A guy out there playing his electric piano in public. He's a busker, okay? He's playing music, singing songs, and, you know, has a little, you know, container out there for people to drop tips in if they appreciate his music, which they did. And this young gal comes by, and, you know, she's with her friends, a youth with, uh, you know, uh, I guess a sense of entitlement or something. She comes by once and says something to him. I, I It wasn't confrontational, but just... She says something to him and then walks off, but she comes back a little bit later, and as he's finishing up a song, she walks over and shoves his electric piano to the ground. I don't mean like gently pushes it, like shoves it to the ground, like trying to destroy his property. And then, to add insult to injury, she reaches into the tip jar, grabs the money, and leaves. I know. it's What did he do to deserve that? Well, I don't know, but she felt very entitled. That's barbaric behavior. And so Jeff Minnick has some great tips here on how not to be a barbarian. I think you'll find this really, uh, really interesting, whether you're tempted to be one or not. He starts with a quote from Hilaire Belloc. The barbarian hopes, and that is the very mark of him, that he can have his cake and eat it too. He will consume what civilization has slowly produced after generations of selection and effort but he will not be at the pains to replace such goods, nor indeed has he a comprehension of the virtue that has brought them into being. End quote. Now, this is a quote that appeared on the back cover of the September issue of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. Jeff Minnick says, Belloc's words set me to thinking, is America well on its way to becoming a nation dominated by barbarians? Are we now a vulgar people, coarse, uncultured, and unfettered from the past? He says, during my musings, I recollected on the epitaph on architect Christopher Wren's crypt inside London St. Paul, Paul's Cathedral. See Monumentum Requiris Circumspice. So if you would see his monument, he says, look around you. If you would see barbarians, I thought, look around you. And so I did. Rather than list the evidence of barbarism I detected on the streets and in the shops of the town where I live and on the websites I visit daily, he says, I leave it to the reader to look around your own community and decide whether our country is growing more barbaric when compared to the culture of the past. If you decide that such is indeed the case, then he says, here are six simple suggestions that may help reverse or at least stem that incoming tide. Number one, spiff up your public image. We're the first society in history where, in matters of fashion, anything goes. Consequently, everything went. Now, if you want to impact the culture, leave the jammies, t-shirts, and jeans at home. Save the gym wear for the fitness center. Instead, run a brush through your hair and dress as if your appearance mattered. If nothing else, you'll feel better about yourself. There is no power without clothes, wrote Mark Twain. Clothes and title are the most potent thing, the most formidable influence on the earth. By the way, I may have to revisit this. Uh, by I'll, I'll see if I can find it. How to Dress Like a Man. Jeffrey Tucker wrote this thing probably close to 20 years ago. Marvelous article. I still refer to it from time to time. He makes the case that, look, 
If you're dressing in jeans and a t-shirt to go run to the store, he says, gentlemen, you're doing it wrong. The uniform of a man about the day's business is a sport coat and a button-up shirt and, and, and slacks, if not suit pants. Why does he suggest this? Is because he's better than anybody else? Nope. It's because a man who is about the business of life should take himself seriously, and by dressing as if you take yourself seriously, other people can take you seriously as well. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent, but let's go back. Next suggestion from Jeff Minnick. Cut the obscenities. Stop throwing F-bombs. Knock off the casual cursing. Quit playing jacked-up rap while driving with your car windows open. If thought corrupts language, George Orwell famously wrote, language can also corrupt thought. Crude oil must be refined to be of value and useful. The same is true of language. Number three, he says, brush up on your manners. These days, even practicing the basics of etiquette will make you look like Cary Grant or Emily Post. Use please and thank you. Hold the door open for that elderly lady behind you. Write thank you notes. Try to pace yourself while eating rather than plowing through a meal like a machine. Manners maketh man, runs the old adage. Manners also preserve civilizations. Number four, respect your neighbors as yourself. If you can't love them, at least respect them. Until they prove otherwise, the people you meet throughout the day deserve the same regard you desire for yourself. A person's a person, no matter how small, Dr. Seuss famously wrote. This show of respect extends to any politicians, telemarketers, and journalists you may encounter. Number five, Jeff Minnick suggests study the past. Ignorance may be bliss, but it's impossible to understand or defend something when you know little about it. This instinct as to the enduring value of the past is, one might say, the very basis of civilization. That's what John J. Chapman wrote in Memories and Milestones. From history, we can draw the knowledge and inspiration to face the trials of the present. Very true. By the way, when you do study history, something you will quickly start to recognize is, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Finally, number six, be courageous in defending the truth. Truth and courage may sometimes seem in short supply in 21st century America. But the COVID pandemic, the battles over what our schools should teach, and resistance against the deep state have produced a battalion of mostly unsung heroes, men and women who resisted mockery and threats to stand fast for their beliefs. To preserve a civilization always, always requires courage. Thomas Sowell noted if the battle for civilization comes down to the wimps versus the barbarians, the barbarians are going to win. So be polite, be respectful when possible, but don't be a wimp. Now, he says, with the exception of the last two points, these tactics for the preservation of civilization may seem trivial. If we review Belloc's brief analysis of barbarism, however, we find that fashion, etiquette, respect, and morals are what civilization has slowly produced after generations of selection and effort. Learning about the past and defending its truth give us comprehension of the virtue that has brought them into being. And I love this thought that he concludes with, a garden untended grows only weeds. A civilization neglected will do the same. I don't know why, but that one spoke to me today. I'm not accusing you or anybody else of anything, but I am going to say that Jeff Minnick has a great point here. Do you want to turn the tide? Notice, this all starts with yourself. Be the kind of person who will defend the truth. Be the person who studies the past and knows how we got here from there. 
Respect your neighbors the way you would want to be respected. I mean, how simple is that? Live the golden rule. Brush up on your manners. Stop running that potty mouth out there in public and spiff up your public image. Act like you respect yourself. Seems pretty simple. Well, is it going to really change things? The answer is yes, it will. Albeit in small ways. And right there where you happen to be standing. But yeah, the change is real. And even if it's only you that's changed, that's still a net change. You're offering that one improved unit to society that Albert J. Nock so famously wrote about. All right, got to take a quick break. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I probably should offer a disclaimer here. I'm about to venture into some uncomfortable territory. Why is it uncomfortable? I don't I think it's just because some people have this aversion to anything that uh, brings up the topic of slavery, much less compares our current situation to slavery. I did this a few years ago on the air and a very well-meaning friend reached out to me and said, "Whoa, dude, I think you know, he now he did this privately, but he just said, "I think you're really off base for making a comparison to slavery and I think it could really come back to bite you." And you know, given today's politically correct environment, I I get where he was coming from, but Look, if we're going to speak truth, just understand, some people are going to be very uh, primed to look for offense. You have to risk it. Yes, they may call you names and they may, you know, cast aspersions and whatever. Let them. But we got to continue speaking the truth. Saw this article yesterday on LewRockwell.com. This is from Jeff Thomas from International Man. It's titled The Slavery Contract. And as I share this, you're going to see why I'm warning that this, this is going to make some people uncomfortable. It's going to point out something that none of us really wants to acknowledge. And yet, if, if we ever want to change things from the status quo, we're going to have to acknowledge this. This is an unpleasant truth. So, you know, courage, stiff up our lip, pip, pip, and all that. Let's go. He starts with a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Now, Jeff Thomas says it's no secret that governments tend to be fond of passing laws that obligate their citizenries to the government. In fact, most countries operate a system of direct taxation, which in itself allows a government to enact a host of laws obligating the individual to the government, complete with significant penalties for failure to comply. And of course, Governments, when deciding what sort of general behavior should be tolerated by its citizenry, tend to legislate less for recompense to those from to those whom a citizen may have wronged, and more from recompense to the government itself, even if it has not been wronged in the slightest. Think about that next time you pay that fine for speeding. Generally speaking, the larger the country and the older the country, the more extensive the laws. Now, of course, in a country that claims to be a democracy... The idea is supposed to be that the will of the people is followed by its elected representatives, which suggests that the people actually have a say in how they are governed, that their government may only impose such laws as the majority agree on. 
Now, Jeff Thomas says, well, there's nothing unusual in that concept. In fact, all contract law is based on the principle that a contract is created that two or more parties agree to. And with the passage of further laws, the contract would be updated. However, he says, if I were to ask you to show me a copy of your current contract with the government, I'm guessing that not only could you not produce one, but that it never occurred to you that you should expect one. That being the case, the only way that we could cobble together a contract would be to list a set of general principles under which you are presently governed. Now, he says, we can use the U.S. law as an example, but much the same laws are common in many other countries. For the sake of convenience, we shall use the terms servant and master to describe you and your government. Okay, get ready. Here's where the discomfort's going to start kicking in. Number one, the servant may not leave master's property without permission. Now, in order to travel outside the U.S., you are required to present your government-issued identifying document for approval for you to leave, even briefly. The decision as to whether you may leave is unilaterally for your government to decide. Number two, the servant may not receive income of any kind without disclosure to the master. All income that you receive, whether it be through wages or the sale of goods or services, must be reported to your government. Number three, the servant shall pay a large percentage of all income to the master. The amount taken from you will be determined unilaterally by your master. Number four, the servant may not own anything that the master disapproves of. Disapproves of, rather. The master shall have the authority to declare any commodity or good unlawful. Number five, the master shall have the authority to fine or imprison the servant. If the master determines that the servant has violated any of rules two through four, he shall be entitled to fine the servant or lock him in a cage for a period of time to be determined by the master. Number six, the master shall have the authority to monitor the servant at all times. The servant's activity shall be monitored by the master through telephone, text, email, social media, and other forms of communication. Now, Jeff Thomas says, of course, these are just the basics, but you get the idea. When looked at in these terms, it becomes difficult to maintain the self-deception that I live in a democracy. My government exists to serve me, not the other way around. Now, he says, interestingly, in most countries, a contract such as the above does exist under the guise of law. And yet, this is not a contract that the servant agreed to. It existed before he was born. He was obligated to adhere to it merely by being born in a given jurisdiction. Moreover, the master has the right to change the contract to the detriment of the servant and will, at will rather, and may do so unilaterally. The larger the country, the greater the degree to which the servant is unable to take part in the discussion as to whether a proposed change in law has his approval. So Jeff Thomas is not surprising then that the larger the country, the more numerous the laws are likely to be and the more imposing they are likely to be on, this, on the servant. Still, the relationship of master and slave exists most everywhere on the planet to one degree or another. And it's understandable if the reader concludes, yeah, well, it's the same no matter where you go, what are you going to do about it? And yet that's not exactly true. Jeff Thomas says it's not the same everywhere. There are countries, for example, that have no direct taxation of any kind. The individual, therefore, is not required to disclose his income to his government. Similarly, in countries where there's no tax on property, the government doesn't have the power to confiscate property for failure to pay a tax. Also, there are borders between some countries that are 
porous. Nationality documents are in some cases merely waived at border agents and in some cases dispensed with entirely. Most governments declare some items to be illegal, but the first world appears to have a lock on regulating or outlawing virtually every commodity. And, of course, the monitoring of the populace is quite unequal. The more sophisticated the technology in a country, the greater the surveillance. Now, this does not mean that you have to live in a hut in the jungle to escape surveillance. It does not mean that many countries simply cannot afford... It means, rather, that many countries simply cannot afford to fund or choose not to fund maximum surveillance. Now, Jeff Thomas says the bad news is that in any country... We're enslaved by our government to one degree or another. The good news is that we can, at least at the present, vote with our feet and choose to reside in a location where we have greater autonomy. In some locations, far greater autonomy. So I'm curious, does does that give you some discomfort? Does that give you a little uh, cognitive dissonance to see things pointed out in terms of the master and servant relationship? I mean, look, I'm, I'm shocked, too, when I, when I consider for how long I, I was able to believe that, no, it is right and proper that someone should be telling me what to do and micromanaging every aspect of my life and sending men with guns and badges to hurt me if I don't do what they say. You understand the difference between that and actual crime where there is an actual victim? The state likes to play the victim. In fact, it is the greatest pretender of, oh, look at what a victim I am. Just go into any federal government building. In fact, you don't even have to go to federal government buildings. Go to your county buildings. What do you find? Metal detectors, guards, reminders, you know, cameras, ubiquitous surveillance, and the reminder that uh, nothing is allowed in here with which you might actually defend yourself. I'm sure if they could get away with it, they would make us strip naked before we went in just to, again, keep us in that subservient mindset. By the way, this is not the same in all jurisdictions, but I think you get the idea. Mentally, it's supposed to remind you who's really in charge. But do you ever get that sense that, yep, I'm in charge when you walk into a government building? I sure don't. I think it's, it's mentally set up to just make sure that we understand our place in the pecking order and our place is right there licking the boots of master. Small wonder that I keep my distance from any chance to go into those buildings. I had to go into the Social Security office here locally uh, a few months ago helping my son. He had, had to, we adopted him, so he was uh, getting his name change all sorted out, getting his driver's license all sorted out. And I got to give credit I have a clip-on pocket knife that always resides in my pocket, and and I walked into the Social Security building, and of course, being a federal building, there are no weapon signs everywhere, and I got to give credit to the, the guard who was sitting there. He was very cool, very chill. He just motioned me over, and he says, hey, just uh, drop your knife in your pocket. I was like, oh, and then I start seeing the signs, and I'm like, ah, I get it, but rather than making a scene, sir, you cannot have that weapon in this place. He just said, make sure it's out of sight. Something tells me that guy is on the right side of things. Even if the policies <laughs> aren't. I'm just grateful for people with common sense and people who understand. There's really nothing to fear from the citizenry. Unless, of course, you're planning to do something to them uh, for which they might push back. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I think one of my favorite discussions uh, whenever people talk about uh, taxation is when, when people complain, well, you know, taxation is theft. And by the way, I do agree with that. It's the taking from those who have under threat of force and to give to those uh, who I guess they feel will benefit from it. Often it's their own cronies or it's their own overhead, but I have a really hard time reconciling it as, oh, yes, it's a good thing. It's the price we pay for civilization. No, it's not. It's theft, and again, it comes with the promise of you will give us your money or men with guns and badges will come and hurt you. And sadly, we have enough people brainwashed into believing, no, this is normal and it's good. I really love, though, the commentary that uh, Thomas Walker Worth made for uh, Foundation for Economic Education. This was back in January. This was published. By the way, this is today's article of the day. So if you want to check this out, it's on my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com for September 27th, 2023. It's titled, Don't Ask Who Will Build Roads. Ask, Do We Even Want Roads? And this is great, because when you question, you know, the, the taxation thing, people, well, who would build the roads without it? Tom Woods, by the way, had the perfect answer to this. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. We would all build homes, and we would build businesses and libraries and schools, and then just stand there from afar looking at each other with, oh, what do I do? I have no way to get to, to well, over there where, where this other person or this business is. He's like, come on, we're, we're pretty innovative. But somehow we've got it in our heads, perhaps uh, been indoctrinated to believe only government can do this. So check out how Thomas Walker Worth puts it. He says, when defenders of liberty argue that government shouldn't tax their citizens, a common reply is, in that case, who will build the roads? And he says, there are plenty of good answers to that, explaining the various ways in which private industry might provide better road work than governments do if, if uh, left free. But, he says, there's a question that often goes unasked, and that is, do we even want roads? By the way, you might feel some discomfort as, as you consider his point of view here. This is a good thing, though. He points out that the interstate highway system cost $558 billion to construct. Now, this is in 2021 dollars. Proponents claim it boosted the economy through faster transportation and increased house prices and job creation. But as Thomas explains, he says it also had huge, hugely negative effects, including the destruction of the railroad industry, the demolition of vast amounts of homes and other property, and the decimation of inner city economies. Why? Because it bypassed the inner city. Something to think about. Now, he says, but these are only the visible consequences. There are also unseen effects to consider. And I love this. He cites Frederick Bastiat in his famous work, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. Quote, in the Department of Economy, an act, a habit, an institution, a law, gives birth not only to an effect, but to a series of effects. Of these effects, the first only is immediate. It manifests itself simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The others unfold in succession. They are not seen. It is almost always, it almost always happens, rather, that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the ultimate consequences are fatal and the converse. 
Hence, it follows that the bad economist pursues a small present good, which will be followed by a great evil to come, while the true economist pursues a great good to come at the risk of a small present evil. End quote. So, Thomas says, what, uh, what unseen effects did the small present good of a new road network mask? Well, he says, for one thing, there are all the lost innovations in transportation that might have happened had government roads not made driving between cities so easy. For example, prior to the explosion of government road building, railroads had been improving their passenger services to attract passengers and compete with cars and airplanes. But during the Second World War, their passenger numbers crashed as new, free-to-use roads sprung up everywhere. Railroad passenger numbers declined from 770 million to 220 million between 1946 and 1964. By the way, government-built airports also contributed. But he says, imagine the kind of high-speed trains and luxury travel America might have today if that hadn't happened. Another lost innovation is local aviation. With roads only going where it made economic sense to build them, airlines and aircraft manufacturers might have had an incentive to develop small vertical takeoff planes that could connect provincial towns and villages to nearby cities, directly into downtown. Airlines could also use these aircraft to provide connections from city centers directly to the tarmac at their airports, making flying long distance much easier. Further, experimental technologies such as magnetic levitation trains, monorails, Hovercraft or autogyros might have become much more commonplace. For the small present good of the interstate highway system, America lost the great good to come of an untold wealth of innovations in transportation. Another unseen effect is the lost opportunity for people and businesses to spend the money government spent on those roads on something else. Now, this money was taken from people and businesses through force via taxation. Without that, even if it wasn't spent on other kinds of transportation, the money would have driven more economic growth, further enriching the potential innovations in technology and quality of living we might have seen. Maybe somebody would have invented a new means of generating or storing power had they had that money and the commercial incentive to make a product with it. Someone else might have developed a new treatment for a major disease, saving lives and making it so there were even more productive people around to create more new things. Ultimately, transportation and daily life could have benefited in ways barely imaginable today. Moreover, he says it's not simply a question of the government using money that might otherwise have been used differently. It's also a question of how well that money was used, how well the resulting product reflected what people actually needed. The planners of the interstates and their urban equivalents, such as Robert Moses, didn't need to and indeed were unable to balance the value of their proposals against economic indicators of whether there was sufficient demand on a particular route to justify a new road, given the existing roads or railroads or air services or such barriers as topography and people's homes and property. As Ludwig von Mises explains in Liberalism, a socioeconomic exposition, he says, for the construction of a railroad from A to B, several routes are conceivable. Let us suppose that a mountain stands between A and B. The, the railroads can be made to run over the mountain, around the mountain, or by way of a tunnel through the mountain. In a capitalist society, it is a very easy matter to compute which line will prove the most profitable. One ascertains the cost involved in constructing each of the three lines and the differences in operating costs necessarily incurred by the anticipated traffic of each. From these quantities, it is not difficult to determine which stretch of road would be the most profitable. 
A centrally planned society could not make such calculations, for it would have no possible way of reducing to a uniform standard of measurement all the heterogeneous qualities and quantities of goods and services that, that here come into consideration. End quote. So those planners, Thomas Walker Worth writes, that got funding for their roads based on the government's decision that those roads were needed. They weren't responding to market demand. They were responding to the designs of a central planner or committee. Now, if the road building had been left to private interests, not only might the roads that were built have been better suited to people's actual needs and have avoided bulldozing vast areas of poor inner-city communities, but they also wouldn't have been built at all where there was no financial case for them. Instead, the market would have encouraged innovation to find alternative solutions for these situations. Now, we can guess that some of the forms this may have taken from high-speed trains to helicopter shuttles, but there are others we can barely conceive because we were denied the chance to ever see them. To me, this is one of the great defenses of the free market. It's not a matter of, hey, let's figure an angle to make money on this. You know, the greed of capitalism, as some would put it. It's more along the lines of, if government would stay out of the way, just think of what we could accomplish. That's the beauty of the free market. And those who are great at creating value or addressing a need, hey, I think they ought to be compensated. I think they ought to get filthy rich because they're actually providing something of value. Government can't do that. All it can do is take from those who are productive, take from those who earn, and then dispense it in ways that uh, various uh, levels of bureaucrats and functionaries deem you know, the best way to do that. Sorry if I sound a little bit cynical, but maybe I've stood in line one too many times at the Department of Motor Vehicles and just gone, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is so inefficient. It's such a huge waste of time. And to top it off, you know, depending on where you're going. I, I don't see this locally so much. I just want to tell you my, my DMV locally actually is staffed by people who smile and treat you like you, like you matter. But I've also been to DMVs in larger cities. And uh, the surliness is simply legendary. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, not something I would recommend. If I were giving a Yelp review, it would be one star at best. Anyway, there's a link to this article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Please take a look for yourself. If you are so inclined, feel free to subscribe. I'll be happy to send you a copy of the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.